Welcome to Lathia Church. My name is Kevin. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you with us today. Uh, parents, if you want to go ahead and dismiss your kids uh, to Alathia Jr., you may do that now at this time. Uh, we have something special prepared for them uh, as uh, we study God's Word this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 16. Uh, that's at least where we're going to start this morning. Uh, I'm going to give you guys full warning. We are going to be all over the place. Uh, today in the Bible. So for those of you guys that did Awanas growing up, congratulations. It is now your time to shine. Uh, so uh, last week, uh, for those of you guys that have been around a while, you know that we've been working through uh, Paul's epistle to the, the church at Corinth, uh, 1 Corinthians. And, and last week we were in chapter 12. And, and what we saw was uh, when we've gotten to this point in 1 Corinthians, what Paul is, is trying to do now is help the church in Corinth understand what it means to live uh, transformed lives in the corporate worship setting. So there's been a number of different things he's been trying to um, kind of bring to, the, to their attention uh, to cause them to, to move towards repentance. Uh, and we've talked about a number of different things, but what he talked about last week was kind of just this understanding of spiritual gifts inside the corporate worship gathering. And what he wanted them to see and understand is that God actually gives to followers of Jesus, those that are in Christ, a diversity of gifts, and that all of those gifts work together for the glory of God to be used inside of the corporate worship gathering on a Sunday morning. Because what was occurring at this church was that there was this overemphasis on certain gifts and underemphasis of others, and it was causing others to feel less than or unimportant or that they didn't matter to God. And so what Paul wants them to see is, hey, the corporate worship gathering is designed to make much of God, not you or your gifts. And those gifts that God gives, he gives in a uh, different magnitude and he gives a diversity of them so that there can be different kind of uh, applications of God using these gifts so that we might serve one another. That ultimately these gifts are given so that we might serve others. And that he wants them to, to understand that we're called to rejoice in those gifts and then serve and use those gifts for other people. And one of the things we saw and something that I did not have time to touch on last week, and some of you guys that were here for that long sermon were like, yes and amen, thank goodness you didn't try to shove anything else in that sermon, that God, and more specifically, the Holy Spirit is the giver of those gifts. That the Holy Spirit is the one that decides who gets what and distributes those gifts to us. And so this week, we're going to take a break for one week from our study in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to spend this morning looking at who the Holy Spirit is. We're going to talk about the, the third person of the Trinity, and here will kind of be our goals this morning uh, in our time as we process through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm going to hopefully give us a brief overview of the Trinity, start praying now on, on how we're going to do that, uh, and then I'm going to introduce and unpack what the Bible says concerning the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to finish up. We're going to try to bring that from head knowledge to like heart knowledge and application. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at how we should respond to the Holy Spirit as followers of Jesus. Like, like practically, what does God want us to be doing in 2022 to respond to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit? Now, let me just say this as a disclaimer to you guys before we start. I took a class on the Trinity in seminary that was 12 weeks long. 
the Holy Spirit was four of those 12 weeks. So if you think you're going to get a full-blown seminary education this morning, mm -mm. this is meant to be a primer. For some of you guys, you may walk in here knowing a lot already. For some of you guys, this may be the first time you've ever heard anything about the Holy Spirit in depth. My, my hope is that we would leave with a primer and not an exhaustive kind of understanding of the Holy Spirit this morning. But if you leave here this morning and you want to know more, which I, hopefully you will, right? I've got two resources to recommend to you. So if you're a reader, write these down. I think we'll put them up on the screen for you as well. Um, if you're looking for like a more lay level or an easier read on the Holy Spirit so you might learn more about him, I recommend The Mystery of the Holy Spirit by R.C. Sproul. Great book. Highly, highly recommend it. If you're looking for a more like what I would consider maybe seminary level understanding of the Holy Spirit, I recommend the book, and, and here's a really creative title, The Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson. Awesome book, awesome, awesome book. Both of those resources will, will um, be great for you to read and process through. All right, so let's go to our text in John chapter 16. That's where we're starting this morning, starting in verse 4. He said, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. All right, so a little bit of background here, right? And, and Brent introduced a little bit of it. But this is the, this is the night of, of Jesus' betrayal. And he's talking to his disciples and he's teaching them. And, and at least in the, the flow and the context of John's gospel and his recollection of Jesus' time on this earth, Jesus has just finished explaining to, to those around him that he is the true vine, that, that he is um, the only way to the Father, and that if, if people really want to know God, they really want to be in relationship with him, they really uh, want to follow him, that they must be in Christ. And then in that, he commands his, his disciples to do a few things. Uh, he commands them to love one another. He commands them to abide in him. And he, he even calls them to be willing to lay down their lives for the sake of others. This is all something John, uh, John uh, uh, remembers and, and, and shares with us in John chapter 15. And then he goes on to warn his disciples of what is coming for him. And Jesus did this a number of times throughout the gospel accounts. He kind of explains that he's not going to be here forever, that the kingdom they're expecting to be ushered in for Israel is not uh, what he's there to do, that, that God's plans are much bigger than what their, their kind of worldly view of what the Messiah was supposed to be looks like. But he does say this. He kind of warns them that the world hates him and is going to crucify him and that they should be prepared for suffering, difficulty, and persecution because of the kingdom of God being ushered in through Christ. Now, this is the, the, the warning he kind of gives them. It's, it's one of those moments where 
You know, for those of you guys, whether you're a believer here or not this morning, one of the reasons why I find the Bible to be so fascinating and one of the reasons why I find Jesus to be so compelling, he literally breaks every rule that you would ever create to start a cult, right? He doesn't like promise all these awesome things or, or money or fame or a, a special position. Like consistently throughout the scripture, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's reminding them of the work that he came to do and the work that they're going to then have to do once he leaves, it's basically like suffering, persecution, rejection, difficulty. And yet here you have these men and these women who follow Jesus and we are their fruit. That our church gathering here this morning is the fruit of that work. Not because there was some special promise to them. Almost every single one of them faced persecution and difficulty, just like Jesus promises here in John chapter 15. And so Jesus is once again reminding them that his time on earth is coming to an end and that he's going to be leaving them And this is where a really key teaching that he has not yet introduced to them yet starts. And he begins to teach them on the Holy Spirit who is to come. And he says right there in the text that we just saw, hey, I hadn't taught you any of these things yet because I was with you. But because I'm leaving and going to the Father soon, I need to explain to you what is going to happen next. And he empathizes with them. He says, none of you is asking where I'm going or what exactly is going on, but you know that I'm leaving and I can see in you that sorrow and sadness has entered your heart. But it's actually to your advantage that I go. Now, I want you to pause and think about that for a minute, right? Because there's a lot in that sentence that Jesus shares there. But one of the main things I want you to see is this. Isn't it amazing that the God of the universe would empathize with his disciples there for a minute. Here they have their leader, the Messiah, the Son of God in their their very presence. They've loyally followed him for the last three years or so. And when they hear that he's getting ready to be crucified and taken away from them, their response is sorrow, as it should be. Right, think about if you've ever lost somebody. Right? Many of us have a different grieving process and we do that in different ways. But there's real sorrow and, 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 and real fear that kind of enters into the emotional conscience of the disciples here. And here Jesus right, sees that and he's like, guys, I, I understand. I, 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 I understand that, that me leaving you it's really, really difficult. You've looked to me for teaching, for guidance, for leadership. You've stood behind the power that God has displayed through me. Right? You've seen God do miracles and wonders through me. You still don't fully understand what the Messiah has come to do, and that's okay. But here I am. But know this. That in the midst of of difficulty and suffering that you're going to go through, it is actually to your advantage that I leave. 
And this is where I would imagine if I was one of the disciples sitting in that room, I would have been like, there's no way that you leaving is to my advantage. There's absolutely no way. But he says that it is. And he says that it is because the helper won't come if he doesn't leave. Right? Jesus is basically saying, trust me on this one. You want the helper to come. Now, that word helper is the Greek word parakletos or paraclete, right, in the Greek. And the definition of that term kind of has a number of different applications, but in, in its most basic understanding, it means being called to one side, especially to one, one's aid. It has the idea of a, a legal defense or an advocate in difficulty. Um, some, some other applications of it in, in classical Greek is that pleading on behalf of a friend or someone who walks through trials with you. So some of you guys have experienced really, really difficult times. I always know, like, when I think back to my friend's circle, friends that I had growing up, the ones that just were kind of present during some of my darkest moments are people I'm still close with to this day, right? So, so when you think about the word helper here that Jesus is talking about, he's not talking about someone that you hire to clean the house. He's talking about something much deeper than that. He's talking about someone that closely comes alongside and is there for you through the roughest and most difficult of circumstances. And that he doesn't leave your side, but he's right there alongside you to walk through the difficulty of it all. And we talked about this term just a couple weeks ago when discussing how the Bible describes Eve in the creation account in Genesis 1. This is one of the things I was trying to say to you ladies as I was talking to you that morning. Like when the word helper is used to describe the role of women in scripture, it is not derogatory. You guys are being compared to the Holy Spirit. Guys, when, when God says it is not good for you to be alone and that he will make a helper suitable for you, here's what he's saying. You can't get the creation mandate done on your own. It's not possible. Like, woman is not subordinate to man. She's not less than man, right? She comes alongside him. And that when, when, when these two come together, something really beautiful happens. And so as God talks about the Holy Spirit here, and you're like, well, how do you know for sure that that's what he means? Look at verse 13 of chapter 16 with me. It says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Right. This helper that God is, is, is referring to here in these first couple verses of John chapter 16 is the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, hey, when I leave, when I leave this earth, the Holy Spirit will come to you. You want that. It's not something to be scared of. It's not something to mourn over. It's not something to be upset about. This is a part of God's sovereign plan for you, and it is a good thing. Because here's the deal. The Great Commission, the task that was being left to the disciples is difficult, amen? Like, some of you guys come to me sometimes and 
uh, um, you, you have legitimate doubts and concerns about what you see in the world around you. And it makes it really, really hard sometimes to reconcile that with what you know to be said about God. And one of the things I, I frequently tell you guys as, as, as you come and bring these concerns to me and you, and you talk about the struggles is, yes and amen, like life here is, is full of suffering and tragedy and difficulty. But the fact that you see that is not an explanation for the non-existence of God but actually is a confirmation of exactly what God said you would experience as a believer and that you would be broken over that brokenness. But God has not left us alone to wallow in that misery and that difficulty. I mean, guys, a war was started this past week. Like, is this world not broken? And yet as believers... We're filled with hope. Hope that this life is not all there is. That there's so much more than what we see right in front of us. And Christ's promise to us is the gift of the Holy Spirit, is the encourager and helper that comes alongside us to remind us of that truth. To remind us that there's so much more than what we're currently experiencing. Right, so let's, let's start answering this question then. Right, because Christ has said to us, okay, I'm sending the helper. I'm sending him. He's going to help you. He's going to come alongside you. So who is he? Who is this helper? Who is the Holy Spirit? Let's start with, with this, an overview of just who God is as the Trinity. All right, here we go. Now, I don't have a ton of time, but take, take my word on this. Much of this summary that I'm about to share with you guys comes directly from Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology book. I am not that smart, and so I'm going to take from people that are smarter than me. Right? So here we go. Who is God? God is one divine being in one indivisible essence. Right? This, is, this is who God is. This is what Scripture teaches throughout the whole counsel of God that God is one in one indivisible essence. But in that essence, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Anybody's brain hurting yet? None yet. Okay, good. Be ready, because it's about to here in just a second. Number three, the whole essence of God belongs equally to each of the three persons, right? This is where, when we start talking about the Trinity, people start becoming heretics, right? They'll start saying that, oh, um, the Father is God, and then the Son and the Spirit are underneath Him. They're like God version 2.0. Or like, if the Father is God, He's God 1A, and then the Spirit and the Son are like 1B. No. That is not what Scripture teaches us. And you're like, well, wait a minute, how do we explain this? I don't know. Right, we'll get to that in just a second. But that inside of the Trinity, there are three persons. And each one of those, per those, those persons contains the whole essence of God. Okay? Number four. The existence 
and operation of the three persons is marked by a definite order. To put it another way, you will see different persons in the Trinity doing certain things. That there, that there is order to what God does and how, how the Holy Spirit works. Here, here's an example, okay? The Son or the Spirit can submit to the will of the Father, but that does not mean that they surrender being God. Everybody tracking with me on that one? That, that the Son and the Spirit can submit to God's design or the, God the Father's design or will for something, but that does not mean that they then lose their divine essence. No, they're simply working in conjunction with one another as God. Let me put this image up for you guys. If you'll throw that up for me, Myra. Okay. I don't know whether this is going to be helpful. If it's not, sorry. As a matter of fact, there were things that I wanted to use this past week to like describe some other things about the Trinity. And just so you guys know, if you think someone has the perfect illustration for the Trinity, run from them. They don't. There is no such thing. And the moment someone thinks they have it, they're usually committing some form of heresy. And you want to be very careful. So anytime you're trying to use an illustration, I remember Gideon, um, this is not normal of kids, so if you've got young kids, don't worry that you're going to hear this from your kid. But like at age three, we were talking with him one night, and he's like, Dad, what is the Trinity? <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, um, you're three. How do I explain this to you, right? And I used an illustration using grapes, and I prefaced it by saying, if you take this illustration too far, you will become a heretic. And he's just looking at me like, what's a heretic, Dad? Right? But if you take the illustration that I'm using, you'll, you'll take it too far and you'll immediately become a heretic and believe something about God that's not true. Okay, but here's kind of like in a, in a visual demonstration what is true about God, right? The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son, right? Now, here's why I love this illustration, because I can see all of your faces right now, and you're like, right? Which brings me to my fifth point. Throw that up there for me. The Trinity is a mystery beyond our ability to fully comprehend. Some of you guys are like, we're in a university town. I love logic. I need to know everything. Like, if I can't explain it, then it's not real and doesn't exist. And here's what I would say to you. Here's a philosophical argument for you for a second. If we are willing to posit and hold to the possibility that a transcendent God exists and created the universe, and subsequently you were therefore created by that God, it might stand to reason that it would be okay that that God would be smarter than you and there are things that you might not be able to comprehend and understand about him. And as a matter of fact, I want to worship that God. I don't want to worship a God that has the same intellectual capacity as me. Trust me on this. I worshiped that God for the first 19 years of my life. He sucked. He was really bad at making decisions he was self-centered, 
He was rude. The universe revolved around him. And there were a lot of really, really patient, loving people around that mini God who walked around Virginia, who showed a lot of grace and mercy and forgiveness to him. You don't want that God. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, I can't comprehend this, therefore God doesn't exist, the scripture doesn't know what it's talking about, you're worshiping your own logic and your own intellectual capacity. And it stands to reason that God might be bigger and outside what you're able to comprehend. Sometimes, guys, I, and you're, 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 you're hearing from a guy that loves theology and loves to talk about difficult things. Sometimes some of the biggest theological arguments I've seen people get into is when they're arguing about things they can't fully comprehend, and God's trying to describe things in language that we can understand, but it's not a full picture of who he actually is. Right? Scripture says that we see as if in a, a mirror dimly lit. Ever been in a dimly lit room looking in a mirror? It's not the whole thing. Doesn't mean you're not seeing truth. Doesn't mean what you're seeing is not, not a reality, but you're not getting the full picture. And so the reality of our God is that this is who he has revealed himself to be inside of the scriptures, and we can't fully comprehend him. And that's okay. That's a good thing. So let's focus in then on that third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? All right, I'm going to immediately upset some of you guys right now. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. Some of you guys have watched way too much Star Wars, right? And I, I love it. I, I, sometimes like I cringe when like I'm in a place and I hear somebody ask this question and they're not asking me and then I'm sitting back and they're like, you know, the Holy Spirit is like, have you ever heard, watched Star Wars? It's kind of like the forest. I'm like, oh, no, no. Like, first of all, that's not how God just is described. God, the Holy Spirit is described in scripture. But two, the Holy Spirit is like rooted in weird Buddhism. Sorry, the force is rooted in weird Buddhism, not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Right? Like, I, I don't know exactly what George Lucas was getting at, but there's a lot of yin and yang going on with the force. Not what the Holy Spirit's doing. Here's how I know. Right? Some of you guys are like, well, how do you know? Let's, let's throw up some of these verses. Um, the Holy Spirit is described as intelligent. Right? Look at John chapter 14, verse 26 for me. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Things that are intelligent teach other people. Right? When you watch Star Wars, I never see the Force teaching anyone anything. They're learning how to use it and wield it, but the Force isn't teaching them anything. Right? God the Holy Spirit is so much bigger and better than that. Right? He's, he's God, and in God, that intelligence is being given to us, being taught to us, being shown to us. This is a role of the Holy Spirit and what he does for us, right? He's not only intelligent, he has a will. Throw up Acts chapter 16, verse 7 for me. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. See that? The Holy Spirit was like, no, you can't go here. There's a will. There's an order to it. Right? This can't happen. Right? 
And then look, I love this one too. The Holy Spirit displays affection. Show, show Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 for me. And do not, look at that, grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see two beautiful things about the Spirit there. He is our seal of our salvation. You don't know what a seal is? It's like a stamp of approval showing you've been accepted. Right? One of the best explanations I ever heard. How many guys like peanut butter? Okay. Jif, and only Jif. Peter Pan fans, sorry. Right? The Lord has spoken, and it's Jif. When you buy a new bar of Jif peanut butter, right, and you take that top off that jar, what's there? A seal. What is that seal telling you? Safe, fresh, it's okay. You can eat this. If that seal's been tampered with, it's risky. Maybe, maybe don't eat the peanut butter. It's up to you. I'm returning it to Walmart. Right? The Holy Spirit is our seal, right? Where, where we know God has adopted us as his children. It's a stamp on us saying, you are mine. Right? And with that seal that's given to us, that seal is in us and it knows us and we can grieve it. Right? When we sin as believers, right, we grieve the Holy Spirit right? because he is a person, not a force. And then the Holy Spirit is God. I wanted to share some scripture with you just to verify this, just so you know that Kevin's not making this up. Throw up Acts chapter 5, verse 3 through 4 with me. But P Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to who? To God. He says, so he says that Ananias and his wife Sapphira had lied to the Holy Spirit, but that ultimately, right, they lied to God because God is Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force, and the Holy Spirit is God. What does the Holy Spirit do? We're going to move through this section a little bit faster, right? But we're going to break it down kind of in two categories, right? There is a natural work that the Holy Spirit does, and then there's what we would consider to be like a redemptive work that the Holy Spirit does. Some of the examples of the natural work of the Holy Spirit in like the creation order is that he was present at creation, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, you see that the Spirit of God was hovering over the void. Right? We see his very presence at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. We also see that the Holy Spirit can inspire people to works even if they are not believers, even if they are not followers of God. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. But one of the biggest examples of this is in, in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6. You see that Saul wants to go, to go to war because the Holy Spirit has compelled him, right, to lead Israel into battle to defend themselves and to expel the enemy. Those are just a few examples of the natural work of the Holy Spirit. 
But where we kind of see the Holy Spirit at work even more so, especially in the New Testament, is in his redemptive work. Right? There's a number of things that the Holy Spirit is given credit for in the, in, in the redemptive work of Christ and in, in securing our own salvation for us. Right? In Luke chapter 3, you see the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus at his baptism, meaning that he empowered Jesus' earthly ministry. We see that in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 through 21, that the Holy Spirit inspired this entire book. Every word of it. Right? We say, well, men wrote those books. Yes, under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit guided what was written by those men, and then the Holy Spirit then preserved that word so that over the course of thousands of years, you and I would have the words of God to us. We see that the Holy Spirit teaches and guides believers today in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. And then in our own text this morning in John chapter 16, I want to read this, starting in verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Right? We see that the Holy Spirit is alive and active today working in the lives of believers to convict them of sin, remind us that our righteousness is in Christ and that Satan has been judged and defeated. This is why I, sometimes over the, the, the course of time in ministry, I've had people come to me just broken over their sin. And they're like, I'm just so torn up over this. I, I hate that I'm convicted by this. And I'm like, no, 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 stop, 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 stop. Guys, conviction of sin is a great gift of God. If you have sinned and you are convicted by it, listen to it. The Holy Spirit is telling you a number of things. It's telling you that what you've done is wrong. It's also telling you that your righteousness is not found in your performance, but it's found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's telling you that Christ paid the penalty for that sin once and for all, and that the judgment has been settled. Because the work of the Holy Spirit is there to remind us and assure us of who we are in God, to remind us of our position in Christ. And that is exactly what Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will do here in John chapter 16. Guys, this is a work that I can't do. This is a work that your friend can't do, that your parents can't do that your grandma or your grandpa can't do. And the Holy Spirit is doing it in each and every one of us who follow Jesus every single day until God calls us home. Then he goes on to say this in verses 13 through 15. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Look at all the things the Holy Spirit is doing. Guiding us in truth. Declaring what is to come. 
glorifying Jesus and declaring the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is God sent by Jesus Christ to encourage the disciples in all truth and empower them to glorify Jesus and proclaim the kingdom of God. That is what the Holy Spirit does for us, guys. And he's wonderful. He's still active today in the lives and hearts of Christians all over the world. Convicting us of sin. Protecting us from bad doctrine. Revealing the truth of Christ to us and to those who do not yet know Jesus and empowering the church to love one another and love God. So how should we respond to the Holy Spirit today? Right There's, there's a, a brief crash course in who he is, but how do we respond to that? And what, is, what does God expect of us? What does, what does God desire of us? I've got four encouragements on ways to seek the Holy Spirit today. And if you don't like them, you can contact John Piper. He's a pastor up in Minnesota. These are his. I took them from him. But four, four encouragements on ways to seek the Holy Spirit. Number one, meditate on what God has said in the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures. Repeat that. Meditate on what God has said in the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 with me real quick. I want to read verses 18 to 19 for you. He says, And do not get drunk, with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. All right, so look at that closely, right? He says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, go over to Colossians chapter 3 with me. Look at verse 16. Look at what, look at what Paul says. Same writer. We're going to see a lot of similarities here. Look at what he says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See the similarities there? It says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, and that stands in the place of be filled with the Spirit. From Ephesians chapter 5. If we want to be filled with the Spirit of God and respond to His prompting, we must first pursue the fullness of the Word of God. Guys, there is no such thing as being full of the Holy Spirit but devoid of God's Word. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the Scriptures in the first place. 
And so if we long to respond to the Holy Spirit, we must first meditate on what God has said in this word. This, Guys, practically this means consistent Bible reading. Studying God's word with other believers and allowing one another to be encouraged by God's word together. And it means memorizing scripture. It means storing up the promises God has given us in his word and then meditating on them because they're true. Which leads us to the second encouragement. Believe we hear and see in the Bible. Believe what we hear and see in the Bible. Right, throw Galatians chapter 3, verse 5 up on the board for me. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? See, see what Paul is saying there to the churches of Galatia? He's saying, hey, those miracles that happen, did they happen because of your obedience? Or did they happen because of the work of the Holy Spirit and your belief in him? And believing upon the promises of God and taking a hold of those promises. That the Holy Spirit is supplied to us and works in us as we hear God's word and respond to it with faith. As we believe in his word. Right, John Piper puts it this way. He says, as we meditate on the word of God, faith comes by that word. And in and by this faith, we experience the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. We seek the Spirit through meditation on the word and belief in what we see and hear. In other words, these, these work in, con, in conjunction with one another, in connection to one another, that we meditate on the word of God, and then as we meditate it, we believe God to be true to what he has told us. And as we believe what we hear and see in the scriptures, we arrive at this third encouragement. We hold fast in obedience to what we have heard and believed. Look at John chapter 14. Starting in verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, this often gets confusing because people then say, well, hold on, Jesus is teaching works-based salvation. No, that's not what he's teaching. And what he's saying is, is that those are who have really been born again of the Spirit, will obey. One of the things I often tell uh, newer believers as they're going through this process, especially in those early days of sanctification, they're going to be like, my life is changing and it's just weird. I don't know what's going on. Help. I'll be like, you shouldn't have become a follower of Christ then because this is what the Holy Spirit does. He causes you to see the word of God, believe the word of God, and hold fast to that word in obedience. You will change. People who really are followers of Christ, their lives are changed. And guys, it's a spectrum, right? Because some of you guys are like, well, I'm, my life hasn't changed as much as my roommate's or as much as my parents' or, or this person has a way crazier testimony than me. God does not measure it. He just says it happens. But that if we want to respond to the Holy Spirit, 
we hold fast in obedience to what we have heard and believed. That for followers of Jesus, if we love him and keep his word, there is a special intimacy of love given to us by the Father. That the Father and the Son draw close to us by the Holy Spirit. And obedience held to causes us not to grieve or quench the Spirit, but know the fullness and the sweetness of God and fellowship with Him. Let me explain this maybe in a, in a different way. Right? I love my kids. And I also teach my kids what it means to be a growing man of God. And there's deep fellowship and love in our relationship. And there's nothing that my kids can do to earn that relationship or earn that fellowship. But there is a depth of fellowship that can come based on their obedience. Right? If my kids are disobedient, they experience a different kind of love. It's called discipline. It's called correction. Because they've grieved me, their father, because they've grieved their mother with their behavior. Our love is not gone. It's not extinguished. We haven't rejected them. As a matter of fact, we love them all the more to discipline them and correct them. And so what we're saying here is if we hold fast in obedience, we experience a depth of love from God because of that obedience. My kids would share the same thing with you. Dad's more fun to be around when I'm behaving. Why is that? Because I haven't been quenched by their misbehavior and having to discipline them. When we walk outside the bounds of God's commands, not only is that not good for us, but we quench the spirit and therefore in love, God disciplines us. And the fellowship we experience with him then is one of discipline, not one of tender embrace all the time. But when we are a lock, step, and obedience with God and his word, the level of fellowship that we experience is different. And it's a sweetness that we get to enjoy together. Guys, this is by no means me saying that if you are living in sin or rebellion and being convicted of that sin and actively trying to repent of it and put it to death, that God's holding you out like this. I don't discipline my kids that way, and I wouldn't encourage any other parent to do so either. But it is different, and it does look different. And embraces look different in the midst of that. And so if we want to experience the Holy Spirit in our lives and walk in it, we walk in obedience with God and his word, taking hold of the promises that he has given us in it. Which leads us to the fourth encouragement that I think God gives us in his word on how to pursue the spirit, and that's this, we desire it. Right, Psalm 42, throw that up there for me, will you? As a deer pants for flowing stream. So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Guys, we should thirst for our Creator. 
we should thirst for more of him. Jesus says he's living water that will never go thirsty coming to him. The way you may thirst for more water when dehydrated is the call on us to thirst for more of God. That is what it means to seek the Holy Spirit and to desire him. And guys, if we're doing this, meditating, believing, holding fast in obedience and desiring the Spirit, here's what I believe God's promises to us. Here's where I want to finish this morning. Luke chapter 11. Jesus says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, and I always love this part, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Because God has promised that He will give the Holy Spirit to us. He wants us to experience intimacy of love through meditating, through believing in His Word, we're holding fast in obedience and desiring him. So here's the charge. Let's ask him. And let's keep asking. Let's not grow satisfied with how much we know of God, with how much he has revealed to us, with how much we have experienced him, how much of his presence we've experienced, how much his assurance we've received how many gifts we may have. Jesus tells us right there, keep asking. Don't stop. Here's one of the fascinating things about this, and here's why that illustration reigns so true with me. If my kids keep asking me for stuff, guess what happens in my heart eventually? Dude, go away. And yet what does God promise to us? More. More of him. Guys, that is our God. Some of you guys had some of the best dads on the planet. And God's better than your dad. Some of you guys had terrible dads. Who, would, who wouldn't even give you the scorpion to use that illustration. God's better than him too. Keep asking him until Christ returns or calls us home.